0: Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you all for being here. Um, my name is David Beer. I'm an immigration policy analyst at the Cato Institute, along with my colleague Alex Narasta, who will be handling the question and answer portion of the uh, event uh, later on. Uh, if you have any questions and you're live streaming the event, uh, feel free to tweet at us at Cato CatoEvents. Um, The Cato Institute, if you don't know, is a libertarian think tank located here in Washington. Uh, We stand for the principles of free markets, individual liberty, and limited government. We believe one measure of the free market is the degree to which we allow uh, it to operate across borders, whether through immigration or trade. Uh, And we also believe that one measure of individual liberty is the degree to which we allow Americans to associate themselves with people born in other countries. Senator Ron Johnson and uh, Congressman Ken Buck are joining us today uh, to discuss whether the federal government should maintain its near complete monopoly over legal immigration. The federal government determines the number of workers who may enter the United States, the type of work they perform, and uh, the terms under which they uh, live here. The question today is whether any of these functions could be better handled at the state level. As a legal matter, this is a question that Congress can answer. Uh, most recently in the Arizona v. U.S. decision, the Supreme Court held that states are limited uh, in this area of law only to the extent that Congress chooses uh, to limit them. So should it concede some of its authority or not. From an economic perspective, the static federal monopoly makes little sense. In a market economy, you want changes to happen quickly at the local level. The federal system doesn't change until local problems build into national ones, while a decentralized system could head off issues before a crisis develops. Despite widespread agreement that there has been a crisis for over a decade, still no changes have happened. The federal-only system also doesn't make sense politically. Giving states greater control would increase the popularity of immigration programs, and fights in Congress that have killed reform efforts in the past could be effectively handed off to state capitals across the country. Congress could fix the system, without needing to find agreement in every area. From an enforcement perspective, guest worker programs have historically reduced illegal immigration, creating an incentive for people to come legally. And limiting workers to a single state is much easier, enforcement-wise, than limiting them to a single employer, as our current uh, federal guest worker programs do. More importantly, according to the Government Accountability Office, 98% of visa overstays are individuals who entered as tourists, not as guest workers. As is detailed in the Cato policy analysis that's on your chairs, this idea has been effectively, successfully implemented in two other large geographically diverse former British colonies, Australia and Canada. Both countries use regional visa programs to distribute immigration more fairly throughout the country and allow rural areas to obtain labor for difficult jobs. The popularity of these programs can be seen in their increasing numbers in recent years. They are now the second largest source of economic migration to these countries. The United States has a long history of federalism, yet it has not so far applied this tradition to immigration. Some states have already passed bills Uh, recommending that Congress uh, allow them to control a state-based immigration program. All states already directly sponsor visa applicants, either through their capacity as uh, universities or their capacity as employers. These protocols could be expanded to allow states to sponsor workers on behalf of industries in their states. So here to discuss how Congress can make this federalist vision a reality are two distinguished members of both houses of Congress. Ken Buck will be, uh, Congressman Ken Buck will be joining us uh, shortly. He's currently at a markup. Uh, but here with us now is Chairman Ron Johnson. He is a Republican representing the great state of Wisconsin in the Senate for his second term. Among other assignments, Senator Johnson serves as chairman of the Homeland Security Committee Uh, Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee that oversees border security issues. For 31 years, he was the CEO of a plastic manufacturing company in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. The senator draws upon this real-world private sector experience, from buying products to hiring employees when attempting to solve many national issues. I first really got to know about Senator Johnson and how he operates when he became chairman and held a uh, a series of hearings about immigration issues. Uh, These hearings were so different from other hearings that you see on Capitol Hill. Uh, They were thoughtful, nuanced, fact-based. They were downright civil. Uh, Imagine that on this topic and in this age. Uh, No doubt uh, his extensive review of federal failure played into his uh, participation today. So thank you, and welcome Senator Chairman Ron Johnson.
1: Well, first of all, th- thank you, David, for that kind inf- introduction. Alex, uh, I certainly want to thank Cato Institute for sponsoring this, and really working very closely with uh, myself, my staff, Congressman Buck, on uh, developing this, what I would call consider a pilot program. We're, I've got it right here. We're going to introduce this piece of legislation, I think, this afternoon. Uh, and. Congressman Buck has uh, the House companion bill on this. Um, I got involved in this issue, you know, really when I did take over the chairmanship of Homeland Security. Uh, we listed four primary uh, objectives or, or goals or, or top priority problems we had to grapple with and started with border security, cybersecurity, protecting our critical infrastructure, and combating Islamist terror uh, or any other violent extremism. and. In that series of hearings, we certainly started, laying out some real information in terms of the extent of this problem. Uh, We held a series of mobile office hours during the, and this is actually before I became chairman, but during the whole immigration, comprehensive immigration bill uh, debate in the United States Senate, we held a series of, of mobile office hours. And in there, you know, we, we announced it was going to be on the immigration bill, and so showing up at these smaller venues, we had people that are very pro-immigration policies and very, you know, str- stridently anti-immigration. What was very interesting. Almost universally, what end up happening is the the very pro-immigration would certainly state their case. Oftentimes, it'd be let's say a, a husband and wife, uh, the, the wife let's say you'd be an American citizen or a husband maybe brought in as a two-year-old into America, they got married, they started having kids and their primary plea was they weren't looking for citizenship, they just didn't want for example in that case the husband being deported. They would tell their story and then the, the very anti-immigrant would talk about maybe being displaced in, in a job situation. Uh, what happened during those meetings is people came together and really understood the other perspective. So they maybe started pretty divided by the end of the meeting, by the end of the discussion, they really were very often on the same page, looking for a real solution to the problem, which is what I truly believe this bill would become a pilot for. Now, the other thing I want to point out is as I've traveled around the state of Wisconsin for the last six years, there's not one manufacturer I've visited that can hire enough people, not one. Uh, there are a number of reasons for this. For, first of all, we tell all of our children you have to have a four-year degree, which implies somehow that, ooh, you know, factory work or being a plumber or electrician is, is second-class status. Nothing could be further from the truth. The other point, and I'm going to talk a little bit about a, a Nick Eberstadt article at the very end of this in Commentary Magazine, we pay people not to work. I just came from a budget committee hearing on economic growth. We had uh, scholars from AEI, uh, economists from the NFIB, and then we had uh, Jeffrey Sachs. Testify. Um, I made the point in my business over 31 years of manufacturing. There were two things I needed to start a business and to grow a business. I needed labor, and I needed capital. So we need to make sure that we have enough labor in this country if we want to grow our economy. We we can't starve our business community of the necessary labor from low skill to high skill. We got to fill in all the gaps yet we also need capital and so overregulation, overtaxation, over-taxation actually takes capital out of the private sector puts it into government. Uh, I, I told two anecdotes uh, one really had to do with uh, for example ag culture you know, so many people are bemoan the fact that we're losing manufacturing jobs um, you have to take a look at the fact that our manufacturing output continues to grow and I use ag culture as an example would anybody want to argue that we'd be better off today if we go back let's say 100 years in America, and we had the same composition of American workforce where a very high percentage of Americans were involved in growing our food versus today because of capital, because of technical innovation, because of you know, this phenomenal equipment. Now we've got probably a level of single-digit Americans growing food for the world. I don't think we want to go back to that. And then the famous anecdote of, of uh, Milton Friedman when he was in China, and he was being shown this ditch that's being dug by laborers with shovels he just asked the question, I mean, why aren't they using equipment? And his Chinese host said, well, it's a jobs program. To which Milton Friedman very succinctly replied, very smartly replied, well then why don't you give them spoons? So you get the point. This piece of legislation is targeted on making sure that American businesses have the labor they need to compete effectively throughout the world. And it's certainly premised on the fact that the federal government is not capable of coming up with a one-size-fits-all that addresses all the specific issues in individual states you know let the states divide, decide based on an overall umbrella uh, type of bill from the federal government I think it makes an awful lot of sense now one thing I've certainly found and I, I appreciate David talking about our, our hearings we, we don't do show trials the, the subject the purpose of every last one of our hearings in Homeland Security is to lay out a reality I come from the business world. I've solved a lot of problems. It starts with laying out the reality, root cause analysis, things like SWOT analysis. You know, based on that reality, you establish goals. Then based on the goals, you develop the strategies, in this case probably piece of legislation to accomplish those goals. So what I found in Washington, D.C., to my enormous frustration, is so often when we discuss these policies, it's a complete fact-free zone. You know, take a look at the current debate over health care. Anybody really, other than a CBO score, see any information about all these policy differences in terms of how it's actually gonna bring down premiums? Well, I'd say the same thing's true about immigration. So let me start with a few basic facts as it relates to this, this debate. And I've got, a, I've got my corny, corner guy here. Pat gonna put up a few things. Current U.S. population is about 324 million people back in terms of these figures, this is back in 2012, it was about 314 billion people. So you can see the entire immigrant, the, the non-Native born, foreign born population of America is about 42 and a half million back in 2004. It was about 13 and a half percent of our population. Uh, of that, 31.4 million of, of foreign born Americans right now are legal. They have a legal status. And you had about 11.3 million that are illegal. Now, that, according to studies, and I'm not sure this is true, but the best we have, according to studies, that hasn't changed much since 2012. So you've got about 3.5% of, of today's current population of America in this country illegally, 40% of those are visa overstays, the rest have come in across the border illegally. Um, it is interesting when you, when you break that down, about 60% of illegal immigrants reside in six states. So this is a big problem for about six states, uh, less so for the other states. About a third of states have the average about 3.5% or higher. Two-thirds have less than 3.5%. And about half of all states have more than 100,000 illegal immigrants in their states. Half have less than that. So again, just kind of lays out the basic facts. Now if you take a look at the overall American workforce, and that's what we're talking about. Labor growing our economy. About 70%, 17% of the current American workforce is foreign-born. About 26.2 million people. Uh, About 5%, seven point, you can change the the chart here now. About 7.7 million workers in the workforce today are in this country illegally. That's out of the 11.3 million. So again, they're about 5% of our workforce. Uh, An awful lot of debate has occurred you know I would say from the hard anti immigrant uh faction of of our of our country they want to deport them all um, What are we going to do to fill seven point seven million workers and by the way the way the, the, where these people are working go ahead and, and let me as a caveat on here, we are taking a lot of information and we 're kind of distilling it down into its essence, you know trying to you know show just two categories rather than dozens, but in general about a quarter of the people working in this country illegally would be in higher skilled managerial type positions, about three quarters would be what I consider lower skilled uh, manufacturing, uh, agriculture, those types of things. And so you can see that the difference in wages uh, for foreign-born is about eighty percent of native-born Americans. So again, these, these are just some basic facts that we need to be looking at as we move forward in in producing or or trying to design any common sense uh, approach to solving our illegal immigration problem here. A couple little factoids. so you can take that down now. Uh, According to the Atlantic magazine, they did a study found that about 40% of Fortune 500 companies were born, were founded by first or second generation immigrants. 40%. That's an amazing statistic. Possibly even more amazing and shows you where we're going in the future. Uh, Regeneron uh, does something called the Regeneron Science Talent Search. It's oftentimes referred to as the Junior Nobel Prize. The latest competition here, held in, I think it was March of 2017, of the 40 finalists, 83% were children of first gen- generation immigrants. Um, 17%, oh no, no this is high, This is a wrong percentage. A very high, per- 75% of the Parents of those children worked on an H-1B visa, which shows that that's pretty important. We just came from a TechNet uh, group uh, sponsored by Orrin Hatch. And I think it was Aaron Levy of Box made the impassioned point that you know, we can't assume that we're going to continue to have the, the world-leading Silicon Valley, you know, producing all these marvels of innovation because. Right now, we are educating the best and brightest from around the world, and then we're allowing them. You know, of course, they have freedom, but you know, we're not incentivizing them in any way, shape, or form to staying here to contribute to our economy. They're going home to China, and to India, and he said time is running out. If we continue to allow that brain drain, uh, some point in time, we're not going to be the center of of the globe in terms of innovation when it comes to the the largest growing portion of our economy, which is really the the, the whole internet and uh, uh, information technology part of it. Uh, last two points I want to make. North Carolina Growers Association. Uh, this is a group in North Carolina. They're the largest users of H-2B visas, right? H-2B. And they supply laborers for agriculture in North Carolina. About, they, try, they place about 6,500 laborers for North Carolina uh, agriculture every year. From 1998 to 2012, unemployment in North Carolina never got lower than 130,000. In the year 2011, unemployment, number of people unemployed in North Carolina was 489,000. Of the 6,500 workers they were trying to put into agriculture in North Carolina, 268 were native-born. Of those 268, 245 were hired only 167 of those 245 hired showed up to work in ag culture, and of those those 167 that showed up to work, only seven lasted the entire growing season. So when you talk about, well, all we got to do to replace those 7.7 million foreign-born workers that are here in this country illegally is just pay higher wages, Um, I think the facts, certainly that anecdote, shows differently plus I would argue we are operating in a global economy and so businesses uh, across this country compete based on global pricing for their end products and so they don't have the latitude necessarily of paying sky-high salaries to attract native-born Americans to do some pretty hard work you know picking picking vegetables in, in the fields you know again you, you understand the, the hard labor that every wave of immigrant ever coming to this country has engaged in. Final point. Now, this is, I would really recommend you read this article uh, by Nick Eberstadt in Commentary Magazine. Um, I want to just read a couple quotes. Now, Nick Eberstadt, I think he's a scholar at AEI. He's an expert dem- demographer. He says, between early 2000 and 2016, America's overall work rate for Americans aged 20 and older underwent a drastic decline. It plunged by almost five percentage points from 64.6 to 59.7. Now he says, unless you are a labor economist, you may not appreciate just how severe a fall off in employment such numbers attest to. Post war America never experienced anything comparable. He goes on to say, the plain fact is, the 21st century America has witnessed a dreadful collapse of work. And again, what did I say? In, in, in Wisconsin, we don't have enough workers to fill out our manufacturing base. One of the things he talked about in this article—it's a very thoughtful article, very, very all-encompassing in terms about what the problem is—he talked about the opioid epidemic. And he said the opioid epidemic of pain pills and heroin that have been ravaging and shortening lives from coast to coast is a new plague in our new country. He said in the fall of 2016, Alan Krueger, former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisers, did did a study. He said, according to his work, nearly half of all prime working-age male labor force dropouts, an army now totaling roughly 7 million. Is that just a coincidence? So you got 7 million prime working-age labor force dropouts. They're currently taking pain medication on a daily basis, almost half of them. And then he, he talks about, well, why is that? And one of the, one of the things he points to is Medicaid. Um, as of 2013, over one fifth of all civilian men between 25 and 55 of age years of age were on Medicaid beneficiaries. And he said, for the prime age people, not in the labor force, the share was over 58%. Then he goes on and kind, kind of describes a process right now where these individuals on Medicaid claiming disability can obtain opioid drugs, and then if you have ever heard of drug diversion, they're certainly part of that, that industry of drug diversion poisoning Americans. So again, I'm, I'm, try, I'm trying to relate the social pathologies of a lot of government policy, a lot of our, our social safety net, which is, you know, in many respects, weaken the American family, pay people not to work, give them drugs that they can sell in the diversion market. And he he finally said that uh, disability checks and means-tested benefits cannot support a lavish lifestyle, but they can offer a permanent alternative to paid employment, and for growing numbers of American men, they do. The rise of these programs has coincided with the death of work for larger and larger numbers of American men, not yet of retirement age. Now, Again, I I brought in to this discussion of of a state-based guest worker program the social pathologies and I would argue being driven by government policy until we look at that honestly and we start analyzing what has caused this incredible drop in workforce participation what has caused the rise of opiate overdoses why can't Wisconsin manufacturers why can't small businesses find enough people to work We gotta ask those hard questions. It's not gonna be a government program that's gonna solve that, but smart government policy, things like the bill we're gonna be introducing with help of Cater today that make a visa program on a pilot basis, state-based, is a really good direction to move. Give it a shot. Let's see how much better the states do. My guess is they'll do a whole lot better than a one-size-fits-all federal program. With that, I probably yammered on too long. Uh, Congressman Buck's not here, so I'm, I'm happy to answer questions.
2: Well, thank you, Chairman Johnson. It's always a pleasure to hear a uh, sitting senator mention Milton Friedman, uh, <laughs> especially during He's my hero. Well, yeah, mine too. That's great to hear. Um, one of the, I will guess I'll use the moderator's or the uh, question asker moderator's um, chair to ask the first question. Uh, in your bill, I'm sure one of the questions a lot of people are thinking is, well, what about welfare. Will some of these migrants be able to use welfare? And you all address that in your bill, that's right. correct. Well, first of all, they won't. I mean, they, they will certainly, you know, they will be
1: taxed, payroll tax, just like everybody else, but this is a temporary visa program. Now, the people that take advantage of this, that get these temporary visas for no more than three years, although, well, for three years, but then it can be renewed, can apply for legal permit status. Uh, they're going to be, they will be confined to the state unless states do reciprocal agreements. Uh, but they won't be confined to an employer. You know, part of the problem, part of the abuse of some of the visa programs, and quite honestly, where just come, people come to this country illegally because they're human trafficked, is they are trapped in a situation and they are fully exploited. So we're trying to put in, you know uh, protections in place so the workers will not be exploited. Uh, but also that they can't exploit our welfare systems. This is re- truly a win-win situation for, for the people coming in here, on the, these guest workers, and for businesses. And again, they'll, they'll be paying into our systems. They'll be paying taxes, but they will not qualify for benefits unless, of course, they obtain legal status.
2: Well, thank you. And with that, I'd like to open up questions to the audience. Um, if anybody has any questions for Senator... Uh, yes, right there.
3: would that apply just to their residents and to their employment or would that, I mean, would they be able to visit other states or stay on their personal time right. I mean, or how, how does that?
1: So there will be a bond, you know, again, we're trying to protect people in terms of flight risk, you know, come in here and then all of a sudden, you know, go hide in the shadows. Uh, so there will be, if, if, if you know, any state loses, I think it's 5% of, you know, kind of keep loses track of these folks, they are going to be required to, to have, these people taking advantage of the post-bond, and then they have to return the bond. But you know, travel within states, I mean, I don't, I don't think that's going to be an issue. I don't think, I'm not sure it's addressed, but I, I certainly want to restrict it. But they're going to have to remain employed in that state or any state that does a reciprocal agreement with that state. So we are going to keep track of these folks. You know, they're, they're, we're not going to do what we've done in the past with, with, you know, 40% visa overstays where we just don't keep track of them. This is fully, but again, the states will be in a far better position to do it. and No, oh, by the way, they have, they have a real incentive to enforce it because let's say somebody is in the state program, flees, creates a, you know, commits a crime, the state that offered these visas is going to have to reimburse the jurisdiction for you know, apprehension and jailing and prosecution, that type of thing. So, no, we're, we're really trying to make sure that this is very well controlled unlike our current visa system.
2: Next question. Uh, yes, sir. Yeah. First of all,
1: what's the SB number for the bill, the number for the bill so we can look it up? Don't have You have to file it, and then they give you one. And by the way, I, I, I never understand what those things are anyway, so we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll call it the Johnson-Buck bill.
2: He'll may want he
1: call it the Buck-Johnson bill, but I think Johnson-Buck sounds better, doesn't it? By the, 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 the overall standards of the vetting by Homeland Security or something, that still has to be at the... Absolutely. Right, yeah, I mean, again, this, this will be, they'll have to apply to Department of Homeland Security. All the rules, all the restrictions, all the vetting process will still apply, but you're going to have to have this state-based program, first of all, qualified by DHS. So you'll still have the overall laws of U.S. immigration system in place. We're just throwing this on top of it in terms of actually managing the specific uh, immigrants. You know, so they're directed toward whatever industry. By the way, this isn't low or high, it's any, any skill. The states will decide what type of, you know, workers they need in their state and, quite honestly, what the wage rates will be in the different industries in which they allow these, these visas.
2: Next question. Uh, yes, sir. Are you
1: going to allow citizen lawsuits so that states can't avoid enforcement? I'm not sure that's contemplated in the bill. Anybody want to answer that?
2: Uh, that's not uh, contemplated in the bill, but there is a mechanism whereby, if the uh, large percentage of these workers who enter into a particular state leave that state, uh, the senator talked about the bonding mechanism that kicks in with that. But there's this another sort of carrot and stick mechanism that goes on. So if the uh, more than three percent sort of abscond in any given year and do that then the numbers are cut for that state in the in the following year as well as bonding being mandated and if that occurs for three years uh... then the state is not allowed to participate in that program for five years at all and those numbers are determined by an investigation
1: but let me ask what kind of citizen lawsuit are you contemplating if, if the attorney general of california decides he doesn't want to follow any of the laws that some, a citizen of california can sue him personally and the state of California to make them follow the law, rather than depending upon running the federal court, which if you look at federal court lately, I, I would say any promise you make, some federal judges on going sh- Well, so, so first of all, I, this is completely state-based. It's going to have to be passed by the legislature. Uh, it'll be up to the state to decide if, if, you know, I don't want to single out a state, but if one state, you know, thinks they've got a real problem with uh, legal immigration and, you know, f- depressing their wages, well, they don't do a program. or. They allow, you know, and by the way, the limits in the Senate bill are 5,000 per state plus 250,000 divided by population. Now, the the congressman's is, is half of those levels, uh, but again, you, you can see this is that's why this is a pilot program. I mean, this doesn't even begin to address the 7.7 million people in this country illegally right now. But again, it'll be totally up to the states to decide whether they want this, and so. That'll be done through democratic process in each particular state. So I, again, we're a litigious society. People can sue anybody for anything. And So i imagine that might happen. But you know, I think you have the legal foundation of state-based
2: law governed by this. And we could imagine, say, a state in creating their own program allow for a provision like that on the state level if they wanted to. Um, the system's very open like that. Uh, any, any other questions? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, the cap you said 250,000 divided by uh, the state population. That still doesn't take into account uh, the fluctuations in the market. Is it possible that this program would actually eventually move in a direction where there is a regional compact? Five uh, census regions. They all have a set number, and then there's a trade agreement states states that allows. To... That's
1: already contemplated in the bill. So you can, these states can you know engage in cooperative agreements. You know, call them a compact, whatever. That's already contemplated. By the way, the numbers grow based on GDP growth or shrink based on recessionary loss. Um, but again, from my standpoint, this is a pilot program. Let's see how the states you know, actually implement this, start looking at you know, business term, best practice. Uh, so then as we hopefully scale this up, once we've secured the border, which again, I, I really do believe to have the American public support of addressing the 11.3 million people in this country legally, we've got to show that ironclad commitment to finally secure the border for a host of reasons. Not just to solve the immigration problem, but public health and safety, the drug, you know, the drug problem, the opioid where heroin was $3,200 a gram, now it's 80 okay? As well as if I'm concerned about Islamist terrorists coming to this country, I'm concerned about them coming in our, our southern border. So we gotta secure the border, but I, th- I think, you know, once we do that, I, th- I think America will be very humane in terms of our treatment of the 11.3 million people. But again, this is a pilot program to show the direction that once we've done that, we've got the public support, we really can reform our immigration system. Can I just ask
2: about politics based on the policy? So if the state decides, there's a change of government, they decide not to participate in the program, what happens to the, the individuals who are part of the program?
1: Well, they've already signed, you know, they've been in, been in place, they are three-year temporary visas. My guess is once that three years expires, if they've canceled the program, it's been a temporary visa and they'll have to go home unless they can find another state to take them. Again, and they can also apply for legal status.
2: Next question. <clears throat> yes.
1: Is there any bipartisan support for that legislation? We sure hope so. And again, we're, we're rolling this thing out today, and that's the you know, one thing I've got somewhat of a reputation for is I work pretty hard. When I, when I introduce a piece of legislation, I get co-sponsors. I mean, right to try, I think we have almost close to 50. Try and do it in a very bipartisan fashion as well. So here's the other hero, here's the hero of the moment, uh, Congressman (laughs) Buck. So I think think I've had the floor long enough. Again, I want to thank all of you for attending Cato, Alex, David, but I particularly want to thank Congressman Buck for working with us. And let's face it, have the courage. We'll we'll probably be a lightning rod on this, Bill, but uh, I think with the support of of groups like Cato, you can hopefully enact some common sense policy as a first step, a pilot step in fixing our, our very broken immigration system. So thank you all.
0: Thank you, Senator. Uh, Congressman Ken Buck is a Republican uh, representing Colorado's fourth congressional district for his second term. Among other assignments, he serves on the Judiciary Subcommittee on Immigration and Border Security. As a former prosecutor and construction company executive, he has a wealth of experience to apply to finding solutions to America's immigration issues. In his new book, Congressman Buck talks about how to get Washington back on track and one principle that he emphasizes throughout is that the federal government should extend more trust to states and localities to solve their own problems. At one point, he writes, quote, the answers to many questions will surely be different in Alaska than they are in California and Massachusetts and in Michigan. But that is the beauty of federalism. Every state can pursue its own path, and other st- states can take note when they see good examples of success, in education, transportation, or any other project. Now he's here today to discuss how he applies these principles to immigration. Please welcome Congressman Buck.
3: Well, I just wasted two hours of my life in the Judiciary Committee listening to this ridiculous uh, debate. Um, It's good to be here and it's good to, uh, and I always also get really nervous when people start quoting my book. (laughs) Um, But I I appreciate it. I'm sure you are familiar with the bill after Senator Johnson um, has uh, spoken about the bill. I'm I'm excited to uh, continue to work on the bill. I'm not ready to uh, sponsor it in the House yet, but I think it can be even better. Um, And having witnessed the health care bill, I think it is important to uh, take the Bill out of the oven when it is baked. And so uh, I'm going to continue to work on it. But I'd love to answer some questions if anybody has any questions here.
2: That's any questions? You guys just came for lunch. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) How do you see this playing out for multi state employers that might have similar needs in multiple states for guest workers?
3: I'm hoping that uh, compacts are formed uh, for this bill and that uh, states figure out how to share. One state may need more high-tech workers. One state may need more ag workers. Um, but by getting together, they can increase uh, the number of workers that they uh, they each get and, and uh, share, and also share in the responsibility of uh, tracking. Uh, the, the immigrants. Uh, if they uh, are uh, willing to do it, an immigrant can move from one state to another as long as they're within that compact and, uh, and remain, uh, and the state can remain in compliance with the law.
2: Another question? Oh, yes, ma'am. I haven't been
3: in communication with any particular state
2: legislatures to know, you know, whether this is, states are interested in this and are how it might
3: play out. Yeah, I know that uh, I, I've talked to the governor of Colorado about this and uh, wanted to get further along with this bill before we uh, go to the uh, state legislature in Colorado. Uh, I know that the Wisconsin State Legislature is considering uh, legislation at this point and, and hopefully we will, uh, as we work through the first few legislatures, uh, we will have a, a well thought out uh, state legislative plan to, to present to other state legislatures.
2: And if I could add just one more thing to that, uh, the state of Colorado um, in 2008 passed a bill asking for more H-2A visas, agricultural visas, not similar to this, but you know, in the same vein. Utah passed a bill in 2011 to create a state-based guest worker visa program in that state. Uh, Vermont passed a bill. And numerous states from Florida, Texas, California, uh, New Mexico, Massachusetts um, have either passed bills, introduced bills. Uh, introduced resolutions, passed resolutions, or have seriously debated uh, this type of issue before. So there really is a um, demand we think out there on the state level. Uh, yes, sir, right there. Um, Senator Johnson touched a little bit on this, but how specifically are we keeping track of the worker, of the immigrant workers, in the state?
3: How specifically
2: would, we be, would the program be keeping track of the of the worker immigrants?
3: You know what? The the beauty of this program is it's up to the state. Uh, they, they are going to develop the program, um, and they are going to certify to the federal government that they've kept track uh, of the workers and they know where the workers are, but uh, the, the federal government should not be, in my view, should not be in the business of telling states how to keep track uh, of individuals. So uh, each state can can develop that plan uh, as, as they see fit. Some states may want a reporting requirement where someone comes into an office uh, once every six months. Some states may, may want to... Uh, uh, some other requirement, but I think uh, the, the states uh, are really the, uh, the laboratories for a program like this, and, and hopefully they will develop best practices on that. So federal government hasn't done a very good job of it, frankly, so we should not be in the business of telling
2: states how to do it. Uh, the uh, lady in the back. Sorry, can you stand up, please? Can
3: <coughs> Like immigration has already has always been a federally delegated power according to the Constitution, so what sort of precedent do you see this full setting, and how do you see it affecting the, um, the dialogue about comprehensive immigration with So So uh, it is still a federal power. The states will apply to the federal government for uh, a set number of visas in a particular area, and the federal government will issue those visas. Um, so I still think the federal government is in control of the immigration process. Uh, it will come from the request uh, of the state. Did you ask another question? How do you see this affecting the dialogue about comprehensive
1: immigration reform at all?
3: Yeah, I I have to tell you, uh, I think comprehensive immigration reform died several years ago. I I think what we're looking at now is uh, uh, to make sure we have the best immigration policy in this country uh, that we can possibly have and and do it in a piecemeal fashion. I hope that uh, by securing our border and by uh, uh, enacting programs like this, we will have uh, some confidence that uh, we can go forward with an immigration plan and, and hopefully reduce the, uh, the temperature around uh, this issue.
0: As a conservative, how do you see it affecting uh, being seen by other uh, conservatives in the House? Uh, how will it affect how they're talking about reforming? Immigration. I, I think this is a conservative issue, and I think uh, Senator Johnson
3: uh, is going to lead the conservative charge in the Senate, and and I plan on leading it in the House. R- giving power to the states is a, a conservative uh, model for how we go forward in education, how we go forward in transportation, uh, and I think uh, healthcare, and and also in uh, in this area, in immigration. So, uh, I, I think that the. The idea that, uh, that we have the right answers and, and are the only place that has the right answers in Washington, D.C. is is not uh, something that uh, has worked in the past and, and is not something that uh, conservatives believe.
2: Next question. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, in the middle. Uh, Greg Chen with the American Immigration Association. Thank you for
0: just championing this important issue uh, and being creative <clears throat> about the ways to do it. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the context? Uh, many have. Propose that enforcement needs to happen first. Uh, the Senator spoke about that a moment ago. How do you see the sequencing of this happening? Do you think this as a pilot initiative? you talk about it as something that would be like a first step, <coughs> that this could move now even before enforcement could move, or does that still need to come first?
3: Well, uh, we, we have enforcement. Uh, I think what we're talking about is enhancing enforcement and we have uh, worker programs and so I think we're talking about enhancing worker programs. This will take in in my view, uh, states uh, a year or two to develop the infrastructure to actually implement a program like this. And it will take the federal government some time to implement this program. So at the same time that we are working on border security and assuring Americans that we are going to get uh, immigration under control, we are working on uh, uh, worker programs uh, and, and trying to build that infrastructure. I don't think we have to have a Uh, 100 percent certification that uh, nobody will ever enter this country illegally or overstay a visa before we start on a program like this. I think they're both going to be working uh, simultaneously and they're both going to take a number of years before we have uh, uh, implemented these programs.
2: Next question. Uh, Yes, gentlemen, back. And please stand. Yeah.
1: Congressman, I want to ask about,
3: Alex mentioned the H2A uh, program or the agricultural visa program. But in our home state of Colorado, there's also a dire need for more H two B kind of workers in
1: service industries, the number of which is still artificially capped at the federal level. So, can the can the states' request not count against the federal cap, or be in addition to it, or does the bill do anything about the federal numerical cap, or do we just not solve that problem?
3: Well, the, 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 in I think the solution is much more complex than just uh, adjusting a cap one way or another. I think we've got to deal with uh, able-bodied individuals in this country who are not working at the same time that we deal with border security, at the same time that we determine what the caps should be. Uh, Maybe not as relevant in in the H2B area as some other areas, but uh, we we still need to address the, the feeling among Americans that uh, there are workers in this country, there are qualified workers in this country who are not working and and need to be working. So I think there are a number of issues that go hand in hand in order to get to the point where we can actually adjust the caps in in a way that that makes sense.
0: But this would be a separate program, right? Yeah. This is a separate program from
3: from the caps, absolutely. And I don't anticipate that uh, someone is going to uh, uh, increase the caps as a result of, of
2: this program. Next question. Uh, yes.
1: So one of the biggest barriers for a lot of immigrants um, coming to the country, especially from south of
3: the border, is just the time that it takes. Um, would under this program, would states requesting those visas have those applications expedited? Or would there still be similar time requirements? Would this make it any easier for immigrants <clears throat> who want to come here under this program to come? Well, I, one of the things we have to do is, is make uh, bureaucrats great again. <laughs> And uh, hopefully we we do that uh, with this program. Uh, the, the The time frames for for some of these programs, uh, you actually apply for an ag worker, and by the time you get permission to hire the ag worker, your crops have rotted. and And uh, so so yes, uh, there there has to be an expedited process here. The state is certifying, the the fact that there is no criminal history with this worker, the fact that this worker is uh, uh, medically uh, healthy, um, on and on. So the federal government, a lot of those uh, uh, checks, the federal government doesn't have to do, um, and and hopefully it would speed this process along. Yes. So in some of the materials that we saw earlier, that. It like You're going to have to speak up. I'm sorry. Right. Some of the materials are, It sounds like the visas can be used for employers who want to hire
2: employees but also investment or investors. Uh, is there self, like somebody wants to has an idea of a company, could it be used by that? Is there any limitation on how the states can craft these programs to what kind of activities the immigrants can
3: do? I don't think there is in this bill a restriction on, on that. If a state uh, can uh, encourage uh, Microsoft to uh, bring workers back from a foreign country to America um, and applies for certain H2B visas to accomplish that goal and agrees to certain uh, construction infrastructure in, in that state, um, and the state puts that package together, um, I, I think that's absolutely within the purview of the state to, to make those kinds of decisions. So I, I don't anticipate uh, any restrictions on, on a state's ability to do that.
2: Next question. Well, I'll ask a question then. Um, So, uh, this is a time when there's a lot of debate going on about immigration. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your motivation sort of at this time period uh, stepping up and doing, uh, you know, working on a bill that is so different from what a lot of other people are talking about.
3: Yeah, I I, I think uh, overall, Uh, the the immigration debate is uh, in in large measure driven by by fear and not reality. And and the reality in this situation is that uh, we need uh, a strong and vibrant workforce. We need to have a workforce uh, that uh, employers know uh, practically every time I hold a town hall meeting in Colorado or every time I visit uh, a business in Colorado I hear the same thing and that is how unfair it is to employers to not know that the person sitting in front of them is uh, a, uh, is, is in this country legally and the documents that they're seeing are not fraudulent. And, and so uh, it's, it's not just a matter of uh, how are we treating the employee, it is also a matter of how we're treating the employer. And, and we just need to make improvements. And, and I think we, uh, with this bill and other bills uh, and, and good debate uh, and, and ideas from both sides of the aisle, I think we can improve the immigration system. So I hear the frustration. I felt it as a prosecutor. Um, I saw the effects uh, on, on schools and uh, other communities of a failed immigration system, and, and I hope that this uh, improves the system that we have now.
2: Any other questions?
3: Anybody else from Colorado want to ask a question?
0: (laughs) How would it affect your state specifically? Uh, Senator Johnson talked about manufacturing in Wisconsin. How would it impact Colorado? Uh, How do you expect that they would use these visas? Um, Are there specific industries that you see them being used in? Um, How would you expect or want it to be implemented in your state?
3: You know, I, I think that uh, Colorado is attracting a lot of high-tech businesses right now. And we have, University of Colorado and other universities in Colorado are training uh, a number of foreign-born uh, 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 and, and foreign students uh, in, in engineering and, and other uh, skill sets that are needed uh, in those businesses. And so I can see a partnership between our uh, public and private universities, uh, our um uh, employers uh, in in this program, and I can see uh, a real synergy in in uh, working in that way. Um, I can also see it uh, We have uh, the most uh, uh, the largest mozzarella maker in the world uh, <laughs> headquartered in uh, in Colorado uh, not just they manufacture all over the country but uh, headquartered in in Colorado, and they are uh, a huge exporter and so uh, there are uh, great uh, benefits to the agricultural community also from from using a program like this, and so uh, I, I, I think what's so interesting about saying to a state, "Here are 2,500 uh, visas," is uh, we're going to see uh, 50 different plans for how to use this program, and and I think the federal government is going to learn a lot about immigration and about uh, economic development from from what the states do with this.
2: Additional questions from the audience? Anybody from Colorado will be favored.
3: <laughs> well, thank you very much for thank your you. time today. Thank you. Thank you.